Welcome to the Iowa Agronomy Update, where we talk all things agronomics. I'm your host, Brent Schwinnaker, and this podcast is brought to you by Asgro DeKalb Brand Seeds. Hey everyone, and welcome to a new edition of the Iowa Agronomy Update. We got a special uh, podcast here for you today. We got a couple in-house guests here today. We're not on the phone, but happy to have everybody here in Huxley today. And we got a new, new addition to the podcast. We've got Connie Davis, Corn Systems Market Development Manager from St. Louis. Hey, Connie, how are you? Hey, how are you? I'm good. I'm glad to be here. Great. And we've got uh, John Swalwell with us, so friend of the podcast from Southwest Iowa. John, welcome. Good day. Good day. Hey, it is about midday here on September 5th, uh, and we are going to be focusing in on uh, rain, rain, go away, and what does all this rain kind of mean for our geography as far as uh, corn diseases, soybean uh, standability, uh, other things that we're seeing right now with with all this moisture coming in right pre-harvest time. So, Connie, uh, you're, you've been doing a number of disease clinics uh, around the Midwest. Give us an idea of what you've seen uh, popping up in all these states and just give us a general idea of where you've been. Okay, great. Well, this morning, for sure, the rain, rain, go away is a big deal because as soon as I crossed the Iowa line coming in from central Missouri, it started raining. So um, just wanted to kind of talk about where we've had some of these disease clinics and the rain has been so patchy in some areas. Iowa has not been as patchy, but um, when I started over a month ago in Kansas, uh, central Kansas and northern Missouri actually has had severe drought. And so what I saw in central Kansas, Salina area, was not much corn in the field because it's all been taken out with silage, as silage. <laughs> Which, uh, you know, when you go to talk about corn diseases and there's no corn in the area, that's hard to talk about. <laughs> but um, what we did talk about um, what, what we normally see, because every year is different, and, and we never know that weather is something we cannot, you know, we can't predict that um, from year to year. We can pre- predict it within a week, maybe, but not from year to year. And so we need to think about year to year what our history of diseases are in our fields. And so I talked to growers from Kansas. We went to Southwest, from Salina, Kansas, we went to Southwest Kansas Garden City area. And there, typically where they're dry, they've had plenty of water. And so um, I went back to Illinois then, and Illinois has had decent water, had a little bit of water, uh, water stress early in the season. But what they're seeing in Illinois is gray leaf spot. This year, gray leaf spot has come in earlier than ever and it's come in pretty heavy. And so we're concerned about that because um, it's something that kind of sits there and the, it infects the plant. It has this two week latent period, we call it, where it takes about two weeks before you really see a lot of symptoms. And those symptoms don't occur until maybe you've already scouted at flowering. And so um, gray leaf spot did come in. We've had a lot of spray planes going up in Illinois, Kansas, Nebraska, Iowa, spraying for gray leaf spot. Yeah, and that's a good point, Connie. So we uh, we talked a couple podcasts back about making that that input decision around that fungicide application, and then the the uh, kind of the side effects of of making that decision when the diseases aren't present, and and now we're starting to see uh, some pictures and, and images floating around of 
uh, of the guys that stuck with their plans and stuck with the fungicide applications are, are seeing huge benefits of plant health right now, uh, which look to be uh, good good results and yield benefits. So, um, what um, what else have you seen besides gray leaf around any? Uh, I've heard of tar spot in other states and Pfizerderma in here. And what what else is popping up around around the Midwest? Well, definitely with all the water in Iowa and Illinois, we've had a lot of physoderma. Physoderma likes water. It's one of those pathogens that needs water to infect and it needs light to infect and needs heat to infect. So our warm June with a lot of rain has really allowed physoderma to take over um, in the plant. Um, you'll have a good ear, the, the plant looks nice and healthy, and then all of a sudden right before um, harvest or before a wind comes through and it snaps off at the bottom. So you'll have those greens or those purple spores at the bottom inner nodes, the second or third inner node, and it'll snap there, clean off. So physoderma um, is, is a pathogen that, that you need to look for. If you have the leaf symptoms, which are banded leaf symptoms or brown midrib or spots that kind of look like a sharpie, um, you put dots on, on the husk or the stalk with a Sharpie. If you have those symptoms, it doesn't mean you have the node breakage, but it is a high possibility that the, that the pathogen is there. So just watch out. If you're starting to see some node breakage, you need to get in and harvest those, those fields early. And for us this year, in the territory I cover, we've definitely seen a lot greater incidence further south of the normal ranges that we've had the physoderma issues. It's typically been something that I-80 North or in the I-80 corridor I've seen more often, but in the bottom two tier counties of where I cover in Iowa, we saw a lot more this year than we have historically. So I haven't necessarily seen a ton of it uh, move into node rot phase, but definitely the leaf symptoms occurred in different geographies than we've seen them historically. Yeah, so so physoderma has really become the the new um, I want to say the new Goss's wilt. Maybe uh, we we focused a lot on Goss's wilt. What probably six to eight years ago, right? And we we took huge steps, uh, advancements forward in our germplasm uh, tolerance to to that disease. What are we doing as as a, a breeding organization and a systems organization to to look at physoderma and and maybe give us some uh, how do we determine what hybrids are more susceptible, less susceptible uh, with the especially the node breakage? Well, right here at the Huxley Learning Center, our breeding team is focused on physoderma screening, and we're also doing um, we've in the last two years, three years, we've done funded research with um, Iowa State University, Allison Robertson, the, the pathologist there. So we are working with them to understand how best to inoculate so that we can better screen all of our populations. And, and the breeding team is working hard, uh, not only in Iowa, but at other locations to screen across the Corn Belt. But also we, um, with the heavy infestation that we've seen this year is actually a a great opportunity to screen our material at multiple locations. So our breeders and our pathologists are out taking notes at the locations where they know these these heavy infestations are. And a way that you guys can help us is to is to report where you're seeing it, report the product that you're seeing it in, let us know so that we can better understand how the pathogen is surviving and um, the spread of it. What what's the best way to to report that? Is that through your local agronomist, local uh, decal Basgro salesman? What what's the best way to get a, get a hold of us? Um, the, our uh, district sales managers and our agronomists can report it through our um, app. We have a disease guide app where we can report um, 
report diseases, we can submit samples through that app and they have access to that. Our local um, dealer can also have access, or they don't have access to the app, but they can help get, get in contact with The way we've done it, if our dealer contacts me, I can enter the information, how they've collected the sample into the disease guide app. And even if we can't make connection, um, I can get the email that initiates the sample submittal and forward it on to them with the material that needs to be put in the package and sent on to the lab. So it works pretty efficiently to, to get it to the lab quickly with the right information. Yeah, so one last thing here, Connie, uh, before we let you go and get started here at the Huxley Disease Clinic. You know, what What are we doing to maybe think about um, modeling or maybe trying to do, make those uh, decisions about fungicide easier for us uh, at that flowering timing when the diseases aren't present? And we, uh, low, you know, low economy, you know, what's the payback? You know, tough to make those decisions when you don't see the lesions, but how, how are our systems trials going about um, trying to make those decisions easier? Well, we've our, our plant health team, our global pathologists, have pulled together some information from 1999 to 2017. And with over 4,000 comparison of sprayed versus unsprayed, what we're finding is it really is kind of a flip of the coin from year to year, am I going to get a return on investment? 80% of the time, you'll get some type of positive response from a fungicide, but only 50% of the time do you get that return on investment. And that, that return on investment assumes that you get seven and a half to eight bushels per acre return from the fungicide at 350 corn or 375 corn. Okay. So you do have to get seven or eight bushels an acre um, to pay for that. And that's, um, you know, that's the grower, grower input, the grower expectation for their yield. Okay. Now, I can help prioritize maybe a little bit. Um, first of all, what, the three buckets that I like to consider when I consider spraying is the first bucket, is there a history of disease? Is there, is there disease present in that field? Yeah, um, so that would be the acre that you would want to prioritize. And then second would be um, a field that maybe has had stock issues in the past or a product that you know that has had some stock issues. You want to protect those stocks with a fungicide. Protect the plant plant health so the stocks can stay healthier. Mm -hmm. And then the third bucket for spraying that would help prioritize is your highest yielding acre with your highest yielding product. So you want to protect the yield potential of that product, especially if it's the, the acre that you want the best the best yield off of. So those are the three buckets and we're trying to get more data so our um, I our, didn't. I didn't hear scouting in that. Oh, <laughs> scouting is important. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I bring it up because I think that so many people elevate that scouting trip, and like this year, there was not a lot of gray leaf when people were scouting right yeah. before the applications were going to be made, right. and decisions were made, and then two weeks later, you know that stuff really exploded, and I think we've got to incorporate all of those other elements along with a scouting program to make that decision. Yeah. yeah. Yep, I agree. And it's, it's definitely, you got to stay on top of scouting because if you don't want to spend money on every acre to spray, at least protect the acres you want to protect. And then the scouting can help you come back and decide if you've got some acres to spray later. Yep. Good points here uh, from from both of these, uh, Connie and John. So, hey, we're gonna we're gonna let Connie we're gonna let Connie go. Uh, she's gonna go get started on the disease clinic here uh, here in Iowa, and uh, we're gonna be right back here with uh, John for more of a look. Oh, Connie's got one more point. I did want to bring up tar spot. I, you had mentioned oh, that yep, earlier. Yep. So, tar spot is an emerging disease. It was just identified in what 2015, 2016 in in Indian in Indiana and Illinois. So it is spreading um, as far as we have seen 
seen more symptoms this year and uh, in Iowa, Illinois, Wisconsin, Southern Wisconsin, Southwest Michigan, so in Indiana. So we are seeing more of it this year. Um, what we believe is that the conditions for tar spot uh, are similar to gray leaf spot. And so it would occur in those regions where you also have gray leaf spot. And so, so this was a high gray leaf spot year. Um, the tar spot conditions that it, that it likes to grow in are also the same. So um, we are watching that. Um, all of our breeders are taking notes this year in those areas to see what, what products and what inbreds, what parents could be um, have some resistance. So tar spot first came from Mexico and we do have germplasm in our Latin American North um, hybrids that has resistance to tar spot. It's just a matter of understanding, okay, what parents are in the products that we have in uh, here in the U.S. and we can identify that resistance. Yep, we haven't seen it yet in the southwest part of the state, to my knowledge, but um, we definitely are sharing pictures and stuff and trying to keep an eye out. Yeah, we've, we've got a few samples here floating around from the, the northeast Laminated part of the state. samples. Laminated, Laminated samples. samples. <laughs> That's very good point, John. Thank you for keeping us in compliance. So, uh, so thanks, Connie. Thanks for joining us today, and, and thanks for coming to Iowa to, to, help, uh, to help educate us on, on our diseases, and um, we look forward to talking to you again. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Hey everyone, we're back. Thanks for uh, bearing with us here through a quick little transition, and we're we're back just here with uh, John Swalwell now, and just John and I, and we're going to give a, more, a little bit more uh, local look. Uh, we got a, a nice regional look from Connie, and and she's uh, she's out starting her disease clinic, and we're going to keep talking here with John. And John, what um we we've had well basically since uh, Monday night before Farm Progress, we've had rain. What almost uh, what six out of eight days now? Too so, much. Yeah, too much. And we uh, the common question around Huxley here the last couple of days is you know how much how much rain have you had? And and honestly we we've quit watching uh, over the last couple of days and quit adding it up. But uh, it, it's been every day, and and this moisture is gonna uh, we're gonna pay the price for all this moisture at some point, right, John? And so what what are we anticipating happening here in the next couple of weeks? once the rain goes through the sun pops back out what what do we need to be watching out for locally with uh, this moisture in the in the canopy well I guess what I'd start out with is um, so um, last week I went and looked at a field with the DSM uh, some winds had come through and we had some lodging in the field so we went out and investigated that and I guess my eyes were kind of open in that particular field we found diplodia in the stalks we found fusarium crown rot we found gibberella stock rot we found some physoderma node rot uh, like Connie was talking about um, and I've also seen from the highway a lot of anthracnose stock rot and top dieback so I think the thing to keep in mind is um, we had some challenging conditions early in the season and I feel like that field that we investigated was showing us the challenges that that corn crop had early. When we found the areas that had more of these disease pressures, we, they were in compacted areas or low-lying areas. And visiting with the grower, you know, this, this field did receive a lot of moisture early in the season. And if we look back to the years that are really bad for stock rots uh, and crown rots, a lot of times it lines up when you have wet conditions early, followed by some mid-season stress. So the mid-season stress could have been drought stress or it could have been some nutrient stress, but that stress brings on some stock cannibalization. And then if you have the disease progressing in a stock that is compromised from being cannibalized, 
um, that can really add up to a rapid degradation in the stock integrity right around harvest. Um, so I think if I have some advice, you know, for folks, even if you're not seeing it from the road, if you're trying to do some, some pre-harvest scouting, think back to the fields that had extra moisture stress because of their planting date. Maybe they were inundated uh, and had anaerobic conditions in the early vegetative stages. Um, maybe they're areas that typically have, have been a challenge uh, with the standability because those those conditions probably existed for a while this year and it would be good to know about those things. The field we got taken to was brought to our attention because a big wind came through and it caused some lodging at the inner nodes where we had that stock rot. Um, but if you haven't had that wind, you could have the same disease condition out there as a liability. So we'd just really encourage some proactive scouting um, and harvest planning um, as, as we're waiting to get these machines going. John, I guess it would have been easier to ask, what haven't you seen? <laughs> uh, you listed off a, a quite the, the list, uh, extensive list there of what you have seen. Last year was a big southern rust year. What Has that been non-existent this year? I wouldn't say non-existent, but definitely not near as much of a factor. Uh, we have detected it just in the last couple weeks, uh, mostly in fields to the south, and it's not been prevalent. The, the gray leaf spot has probably been a more prominent leaf disease that we've seen. Um, and we have seen some pockets of Goss's wilt. You brought back the fact that, you know, six, eight years ago, Goss's wilt was a hot topic. Um, it does look to me like we have really improved the germplasm that we've put out there because I think the conditions existed that if we had as many acres in susceptible germplasm as maybe we did back when, when Goss's first crossed the river, we'd see a whole different story. But most of what we're seeing on Goss's wilt is um, it's coming in late. It hasn't totally uh, inundated the whole field. You may have a few pockets where the disease got in early that are going to be reduced in yield, but the whole field impact is a lot less than what we saw in the past. And oftentimes it was off, um, uh, associated with a hail or wind event that did some damage to bring it in. So I don't see that being as a huge yield robber, but it's definitely something to keep your eye out for uh, and consider as maybe you go back onto those acres in a corn on corn rotation. John, you also you also mentioned rapid uh, degradation uh, of that stock quality. Certainly, something if you drive uh, anywhere around around the state here uh, over Labor Day weekend, you're certainly seeing a, a lot of that. Is this generally just? Uh, are we at that point on maturity? Is moisture helping that out, or a combination of everything <clears throat> together? I think it's a combination of mostly those two. As the plant approaches physiological maturity, it's just not investing any resources in maintaining plant health anymore. And if you put the, the stress that we had mid-season and then this moisture now, I, can, I don't remember for sure if it was two years ago or four years ago, but we had a rainy farm progress show, go figure, right? And <laughs> yeah. 10 days later, there were significant geographies across the state that just turned black with saprophytic fungi really working on those corn plants and um i i think we're set up for that to occur in some places again this year we're going to go back to a warm weather pattern it looks like so i i don't want to sound like a downer but i don't want anyone to be surprised if they see some rapid degradation in the plant health uh just based off of what we've seen for this weather pattern yeah, I I don't think anybody's gonna be surprised. I, I think if you're if you're watching your fields on a on a day to day basis, you're you're certainly seeing it. I don't 
think you'll be surprised, but I, I think you may be surprised at how big some of these spots are once once you get out into those into those fields, whether it's a beneath the terrace or or a side hill or a clay spot or a sandy knob, whatever that looks like, these seem to be the spots that are going first. Yep, and you know sometimes as you're driving around the edges of the field, you may not be able to see back into those pockets. I would encourage if you're using the climate platform. The satellite imagery we've been getting on the field health images has been a tremendous asset in trying to figure out what the areas of concern are in the field. And then you walk to that area rather than um, just guessing and sampling in a little bit by the edges. So I would encourage you to continue to watch those. Take the time to do that harvest planning because um, we don't have a lot of margin uh, in the profit this year. and. You know, getting to one field earlier that has some more uh, harvest loss risk could could really help make the differences to staying in the black or, or going in the red on that particular field. Yeah, and harvest loss risk is a, is a big topic, I think, right now. What what moisture do we go out and get some of this stuff when it, if it is heading uh, downhill fast? You know, I think... If you have the capabilities to dry uh, some corn, uh, there might be situations, especially when temperatures are still still high enough, right? I mean, it's not going to take a lot of propane to dry this corn. Yeah, it's a heck of a lot uh, less propane burned when you got 80 degree ambient temperatures. And um, don't be surprised if you do have some pockets that are within the limits of whatever your infrastructure will allow you to start taking corn. But I definitely think it's in our best interest to be proactive on that this season with the weather that we've gotten at the end of the season in particular. Yeah. So, corn, uh, stay tuned. Uh, keep a watch out and, and don't be surprised here. So, uh, let's transition into beans. Uh, what what is this? Uh, what's this rain going to do for for our beans? We're seeing uh, probably most of what I'm seeing is probably just uh, standability. Um, maybe getting a little lazy. Maybe not necessarily standability. Uh, but John, what what does the standability usually mean during late August, early September? Yeah, well, you know, when we have a, a really highly productive system, we are pushing these beans to high yields. And when that happens, we get a lot of growth. And if that growth um, stretches up, those beans are up midway to your chest, and you get some of these severely soaking periods, multiple rain events in a row, we can tamp that canopy down. If that canopy doesn't rebound up to a certain extent, you lose airflow, you lose sunlight intervention, or in sunlight um coming into the canopy and that just keeps some of those soybeans from uh, finishing off as well as they might so these rain events you know for the people that were on the border of the drought they've been a godsend because they had some beans that um, were in that situation where they were uh, susceptible to lodging because they had some mid-season stress and if they were planting a full season maturity for their area they're likely going to get some nice benefit on on this rain helping finish off and get larger sized seeds produced on those soybean plants some guys, though, if they were way late on the planting of a couple fields with a full season variety, and if those beans were not fully formed and they got awful growthy because they had good growing conditions, I, I think they're going to struggle a little bit. And it may be another year where those early season soybeans could be some of our, our better yielders. Um, around my own house, the soybeans that were starting to drop a few leaves and you could see some signs of senescence and maturity in them, they handled this weather pattern just night and day better than uh, some of the later beans that had more growth to them. So it's a live and learn deal. Um, I think we need to be evaluating these 
challenges that your different soybean fields have so that we are positioning the right numbers uh, as we go into next year. Identify those fields that are more likely to have a lodging disease issue versus the fields that are likely to have a tougher soil, um, you know, they're less apt to have those, those high yield lodging type conditions and, and put that into our plan when we're using these different soybean products that we have. We got a lot of diversity in the lineup. Um, we can address those situations, but part of it starts now with evaluating what a soil type or a particular field's worst risks are. Yeah, John, you, you mentioned, um, you know, a little bit about uh, some standability and, and what we have to offer with, you know, what the maturities look like and things like that. What, uh, what have you seen as far as um, diseases i don't think we have any huge outbreaks like a like a gray leaf and corn or anything like that but but probably pockets of something yeah it's a little less general i mean for a lot of my territory we were looking at septoria brown spot that actually progressed up the plant more quickly than it did in some other years septoria brown spot you're always going to have it it's going to work from the bottom of the canopy up um, and it, the closer you get to maturity the further up it's going to come but i would say a lot of people observe that uh, kind of progressing more rapidly than it normally would we've got pockets where white mold is an issue um, it's definitely not the areas that had the drought stress but there are pockets where white mold is an issue again we've had a few fields of sds pop up just in the last couple weeks um, I've talked to some other agronomists today and, the, and they've got some fields with heavy brown stem rot pressure. Um, so all of those have been in play depending upon your geography, but I would say less consistency in the disease pressure in the beans. Um, and, and beans in general, I think maybe insects are going to play about as big a role for some markets as what the disease pressure is going to as far as things that could take away from yield. Yeah, we, we touched on that uh, a couple weeks ago with uh, Jim McDermott and the and the soybean gall midge. Yep. Uh, certainly working into your area as well, Definitely. John. Yeah, and how how far how far east are you starting to see that that insect now, John? The observations myself, uh, we've seen them in the Essex area and a little bit east of there. So I don't know for sure. There's a lot of places that they've blown up. Um, and my first look was just at fields that were not devastated too bad but there are some pockets as guys looked around more and knew what they were looking for that but i've gotten into a lot more significant economic impact so it's definitely something we got to try and learn about yeah i i think you know uh japanese beetle fed for a lot longer than they normally do and we have seen a lot of stink bug pop up late in some of these fields so like i said insects are going to take their toll again yeah Seems to be the case of soybeans year in and year out there. Uh, Japanese may be a newer one. We, we've seen it in this area for a number of years, but uh, a newer pest in, in the outskirts or certain different areas. So, John, give us a, give us a quick uh, sound bite here on the way out the door. What, um, what tips do we have for harvest? Uh, should be before our next uh, episode, we'll probably get probably get some people starting probably some people have already started uh, maybe some wet corn silage things like that what um, what should we look out for what should we be expecting here uh, I, from harvest I'd just concentrate on making your own harvest plan because like I spoke about there's a diversity of issues in the geography I cover there's also a diversity of issues by your management style and planting date and I really feel like there's going to be extreme chances for harvest losses. So the more scouting that you do and the more of a strategic plan you make onto what crop you're gonna take first 
uh, what moisture you're going to start at and how you're going to maximize the number of acres you get done with the days that we are given for harvest is probably the biggest thing you can do to influence profitability from here on out. Yeah, one of, I think one of the last things I'd, I'd end with is I, I'm I'm kind of excited to see, you know, the um, the multitude of layers that we have in the in the field view uh, platform and and through yield analysis. What can we learn through these conditions, whether, John, you mentioned planting dates, uh, planting conditions, uh, what you know, what did we do back in May uh, that either uh, helped or hurt our, our crop and, and using yield analysis is going to help us get to those points. So uh, looking forward to uh, diving in to see what uh, what some of those factors were. So Yep, definitely. Yeah. The more information that we have at our fingertips when we're rolling through that crop, the more we'll be able to unravel some of the trends that we can have an influence over. Yep. Um, so that, that's got to be our goal. Yeah. Good stuff, John. Thanks for joining us again. And hey, uh, thanks for joining us, everybody. If uh, if you've got any things here heading into harvest, uh, any things that you're seeing in the field, hit us up on social media, uh, and we'll uh, certainly get it uh, answered here on the podcast throughout harvest and hopefully give you guys something to listen to while you're uh, in the grain cart or in the combine. So thanks a lot for joining us. We'll see you again in a couple weeks. Thank you. Take care.